I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and we are here today with a very exciting guest. We have Matt Higgins, who's the author of Burn the Boats, and he's also the co-founder of RSC Ventures. We're going to get into what Matt is up to. But first of all, this book, Burn the Boats, I've got it right here, is absolutely awesome. You have to, have to, have to get this book. He is also the co-founder, as I said, and CEO of RSE Ventures, which is a private investment firm, uh, which he co-founded with Stephen Ross, who, amongst other things, is a giant real estate developer and the owner of the Miami Dolphins. Uh, prior to this, though, Matt served as a top executive with the Dolphins, but was also with the New York Jets for many, many years. So if you're familiar with the show Shark Tank, you may recognize Matt uh, as he appeared on Shark Tank series. I think it was season 10, if I got that correct. And uh, finally, Matt is an executive fellow at Harvard Business School, where he teaches the course Moving Beyond Direct-to-Consumer, which is a must-take for so many entrepreneurs in the making at that school. So, all right, I'm super, super excited about this. Can't wait to dig in more. So without further ado, welcome, Matt Higgins. Thank you for that incredible intro. I'm sorry I filled up so much space (laughs) to put me on. Thank you. Absolutely awesome. Okay, so before we get into the book and some of your career, I want to start in your early life. So I read you grew up in Queens, and uh, what was what was your life like early on? Yeah. Um, well, hello, everybody. Thanks for having me on. I grew up in Queens, New York, was the product of a single mother uh, and uh, who just always struggled with a lot of issues around her weight. Um, to be perfectly honest, she had thyroid gland disorder. So, um, and was a high school dropout, but fiercely intelligent. So, a lot of my early memories were sitting with her on the kitchen table and her writing poems and just just all this intellect trying to find a way out. And um, she actually got divorced from my father when I was nine years old. So, my earliest memories were of her taking me to uh, elderly citizens' homes uh, and cleaning. Uh, she worked at Catholic charity, so she's making, you know, eight, nine dollars an hour trying to raise, you know, four rotten boys. There were four of us, which you can imagine how hard that is. But then going um, and got her GD and uh, going to Queens College. And it was the first time in her life that she ever felt dignity. And so my early, my early, my earliest memory was the transformative power of education. And so I watched her get a degree and really try to make something of herself. She went on to graduate from Queens College and pursue two master's degrees. But while that was happening, her health was fading. There were a lot of psychological issues that she had to contend with, a lot of depression. So, so the framework was watching my mother aspire, but meanwhile having nothing to eat. You know, we, we would, I said, I grew up on government cheese and we would take a bus to another neighborhood an hour away to get boxes of food from a food pantry. They used to be like, aren't there churches where we live? But you know, a lot, a lot of like shame. And so, uh, 
it was a combination of being very close to my mother and being very desperate to change our circumstances and just selling flowers on street corners as a kid or scraping gum underneath table at McDonald's, just doing whatever it would take to survive. That's absolutely incredible. So you were, uh, where did you fall in the four kids? As usually happens, it's the burden of the youngest, you know, to go ahead and take on all the obligation. All the uh, the other boys were gone or, you know, you know, stealing cars, whatever it is they were doing. Like, it was definitely, no, my brother Todd, I'm very close to him, and he, he actually ended up being a lawyer as well. But but everybody was older, so they, they could free themselves, to be perfectly honest. And and I um, I just realized, you know, when you're a kid, you just hope somebody comes in and steps in, especially when you're the product of a single mother. You kind of have a hero narrative. Like, where's the man going to come in and rescue us, right? And at a certain point, I became very disillusioned because it was getting more, um, more, more urgent. And I had the sense that I needed to make radical change in order to get out of poverty. And my mother, one of the greatest gifts she gave to me was a life hack. And I realized, you know, she went to college as an adult. She got a GED uh, and she did well enough to go to, to Queens College. I was like, why don't I run that play on purpose? Because I would look at the Petty Saver ads, you know, my little local, local newspaper. I was making three seventy-five an hour at McDonald's. But in the Petty Saver ad, it said, hey, you know, work for a congressman delivering flyers, make like $8 an hour. I was like, wait, I can 2x my income potential if I just can get into college. And around seventh grade, I had an epiphany. I'm going to go and I'm going to drop out as soon as possible, get a GD, and I'm going to go to college. Which is what birthed this book, Burn the Boats. It was that first crazy bird the boats move that set my entire career uh, in motion. So that was in high school. Yeah. So when I, you know, so when I, when I, 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 so that, you know, it's one thing to talk about this years later and that was all smooth. We exactly as we drew it up, there were a lot of getting arrested by truant police along the way. My guidance counselor, Mr. Barkin, may he rest in peace, would, would say to me like, this is, you're, you're never going to shake the stigma of being a high school dropout. This is crazy. So I realized early on in order for me to defy the full weight of conventional thinking, I need to give myself no plan B. I need to give myself no option to retreat. So I decided I was going to get left back and fail every single class, except for typing, because I type, type, typing would be useful. But I failed every class, for, sat in the same homeroom for two years while everyone thought, what is, what's going on with this kid? Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart. Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week, too like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off 
plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. What they didn't know is at home, I had a mother who was slowly deteriorating and was screaming in pain. You know, we couldn't function. House was filthy. You know, I never had a single friend over my home until I was, you know, 26. So I realized no one has context into your life, especially when you're hiding your shame. And and I gave myself no plan B in order to retreat. And at 16 years old, I dropped out of high school, took my GED, and started college when I was 16. So that single one unconventional chess move pulled forward all my professional success by at least two years and set in motion everything that I benefited from today. I'm making it sound a lot easier. Right. But, but you know, that's the genesis of my Burn the Boats book. Well, and it's always, I, I think you and I were t- chatting about writing a book. I, I think that writing a book, too, and sort of putting that, it's its therapy, right? You're connecting the dots of sort of what happened along the way as well, which, um, I mean, it's an, an absolutely incredible story. But I also love the fact that, you know, it was your mother. I mean, that that's a whole other piece that I think a lot of people yeah, like, are. Well, you could relate, like, 
on the one hand, I was, if I'm, I, I want to be honest for any kid out there who feels like they've been parentified, right? There was a degree of resentment. Why are you putting it all on me to take care of everybody or rescue everyone? And she would always say, you could be the president. You were meant to be something. I was like, I don't want to be the president. I want to go to a, drink wine coolers in the park at night, like, or do whatever kids are supposed to be doing. But, um, but, but so there was a degree of dysfunction around that, which happens in poverty. But at the same time, that she would always had limitless faith and that whatever I did, I would just figure it out. So even this radical decision, she never tried to talk me out of it, never tried to get me to conform. She sort of recognized that there was perhaps something special and defiant about me. And that faith, you know, despite everything we went through, was the greatest gift she ever gave because she stood by and watched me make that move, uh, which any parent out there when your children has is saying something unconventional, try not to dismiss it because my mother died with $100 in the bank but she bequeathed to me that unending faith and that I was going to figure it out. Yeah. And she also figured it out. I think that that's another, you know, great. If she can figure it out, you can figure it out, which is a lot of what I got out of out of your book as well, which was in incredible. So fast forward a few years, you hustled. Uh, you did. Uh, you were the youngest uh, New York City press secretary. Is that correct? That was yeah, 26. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and you went to law school, uh, decided not to be an attorney. I'm married to a recovering attorney as well. So he can and relate. He can <laughs> relate to the wisdom of that choice, right? I just made it a little bit earlier <laughs> than he did, probably. Yeah, he didn't realize that he had to do timesheets. That was no one ever told him. That I talk about <laughs> that in the book. I'm like, wait, I used to work at McDonald's and I had to clock it in. Now I'm going to go to Skadden Arps, sit in a basement with a yellow highlighter doing discovery. And you're going to, you know, I'm going to be measured by whether I did 2,000 hours of that. Like, totally. it's just like being a McDonald's. I was like, no, 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 yeah. offense. no offense to lawyers out there. I have a degree and I use lawyers. Yeah. I love lawyers. I just didn't want to be one. No, absolutely. And and then you went on to run the business of the Jets, and uh, which is absolutely incredible. I was loved connecting those dots, how you ended up connecting with Gary V, and then uh, you went to the Dolphins. I was just like, this is incredible. And obviously, it wasn't so easy probably along the way, but it just seemed like it was definitely uh, your journey. So tell me, you know, we mentioned Gary. So how did you meet Gary? Can you share a little bit about that story? Yeah, yeah, Gary uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, for those uh, out there. he uh, He's a huge Jets fan, which anybody who follows him knows. And I was at the Jets. Believe it or not, I don't eat, breathe, live sports. Everything I do, I always think, what's the best leverage out of the thing I'm doing now to what I want to do next, right? I always ask myself that sequence of questions. And prior to the New York Jets, I was overseeing the redevelopment of the World Trade Center site. I was chief operating officer. So I went from being press secretary in New York to probably the third employee hired when that when the World Trade Center was still 2,000 degrees uh, and for two years helped put together a plan in place for the memorial, the uh, the Freedom Tower, everything you see right now. The point of that story is, though, rather than define myself as a government employee, you know, a 25 or, you know, a specific type of employee, I said the real skill here is taking complicated fact patterns, constituencies, bringing them together and trying to forge consensus. Well, the Jets needed to build a stadium. So when they, they were looking for somebody, that was my way to migrate into the private sector, into sports. And so that's how I started running the Jets. However, unlike Gary, I don't eat, breathe, and die sports. And I met him uh, when he was at winelibrary.com. We met at a big old store in New Jersey. My staff was like, this guy's going to be a billionaire and he's going to buy the Jets. I was like, he's selling wine. He's not going to buy the Jets. But if you want me to go meet with Gary Vaynerchuk to try to sell him a sweep, you know, I'll do it. 
And we sat down in, a, in that bagel store. And I'll be honest, the first 10 minutes listening to him, I'm like, this is out of his mind. It's like gesticulating and talking about where the future's going. But it's always the second 10 minutes that I've told this story before that I will remember for the rest of my life. His basic theory, and this is 2009 when Twitter is still you know, relatively nascent. Basic theory was that social media is going to continue to compound, which is going to turn every single person on this earth into both Comcast, you know, the, the platform owner. It's going to turn them into the Sopranos at the time, the TV show, right? It's going to turn them into the star of their own, of their own lives. And it's going to do it through the phone. And so big corporations are not going to be able to handle that speed by which the world's going to change. And they're going to need to outsource it. So I'm going to create an agency with my little brother, AJ, who was still in college at the time. And, uh, and I'm going to take advantage of it. And well, I was sitting there thinking, you know, he's right. <laughs> Number one. Number two, sure would be nice to be the guy who gets that at sports. So maybe my relationship with Gary could turn me into that innovative sports executive. I mean, that's how I was inclined. And so we cut a deal over four Jets tickets to launch what is now VaynerMedia. And I became the first client. And when I went out on my own with Stephen Ross and started building this consumer empire, you know, right away he got it, like how valuable it would be to partners with Gary. And I went back and acquired a significant minority stake in the firm. And we've been partners ever since. So anybody out there who sees somebody come in an unconventional package with profanity every 10 seconds, be careful not to dismiss them. Pay attention to the substance <laughs> of what they're saying, not in the package that it's delivered. Single greatest decision I've made was to back Gary because I've been stealing his ideas ever since, basically. Yeah, no, I, I can only imagine. Well, I loved that story so much and how that turned into a business. I also saw something, a glimpse into you, too. And obviously, reading the book, I saw this, too, that, you know, there wasn't a job, right? There wasn't an idea like, okay, Matt's going to jump in and take this thing over. There was, you know, it, it, you just you took components and then you made it into something over and over and over again. And I loved that. Because I think that that's where the most, we call it disruption, but that's where the most successful entrepreneurs start. Yeah, I didn't, right. I had a very loose thesis in creating RSE, and it was basically you at the epicenter of the Miami Dolphins, which is this great asset that gives you visibility into you know, emerging trends, but it also gives you the ability to tap into them if you want to. Every nascent social media platform would have given up equity to like the NFL in order to get the you know, to supercharge it. Well, the same can be sent for an individual team. So it would give you access to deal flow. But also the Dolphins at the time, you know, were not in great shape. They were a money-losing franchise and I knew how to oversee a team. So I, I, I thought to myself, my leverageable asset is that I know how to oversee a team. My desire, though, is to be an entrepreneur writ large. So let me marry my leverageable asset, having this oversight role of the team, to working with Steve Ross to, to invest in great founders. So you're 100% right. Like, it wasn't, I, I could I could make it up that there was some concrete thesis, but that's it. But then I went to work and the first place I started was to, was tapping into the magic of great founders and figuring out what is it they need to go to the next level? What is it they need to scale? In the case of Gary back in the day, it was four jet tickets to get started and some great clients. In the case of Jesse Darris, another story I tell in the book about, it was a young maverick in PR, brilliant, but he needed the courage to make the leap to start his own firm. And that's when I gave him. So I approach every situation where I meet somebody magical and think, what would it take to unlock you even more? And everybody has more, right? We're always trying to touch the ceiling of our potential. That's how any business or investment I have has been started, really, is how can I serve you? And that's the purpose of the book, too. So you wrote 
a fabulous book called Burn the Boats, in which you recommend abandoning conventional wisdom. You talked a little bit about this just now, but definitely you started that with your high school move, maybe even sooner than that. Uh, You were just kind of going against the grain, just figuring it out as you went along. But why is trusting our instincts so important? Uh, It's because at the end of the day, you have, you will always be the greatest expert on you. There'll never be a better expert on you. And in life, the best decisions are made when you have perfect information or as close to perfect information, right? So we tend to overlook that, which is amazing. And we're conditioned in society to either to defer to experts or to go to Barnes and Noble, frankly, read my book, right? We're always looking for the answers to the test outside of ourselves. And there's a great essay by uh, Emerson uh, called Self-Reliance. And I won't deliver the phrase in Latin, but the first words in it are, do not seek outside thyself, right? Like, that is so for me, I believe so much in your infinite capacity to just figure it out that I wanted to be the best friend who would hold up a mirror and say, this is what just figuring it out looks like. I'm going to present to you so many case studies of people who did that, that by the end, you're going to feel like, you know what? I thought I could just figure it out. But this person in my life who's trying to sabotage my sense of self-worth told me I couldn't. This voice in my head told me I couldn't like So the whole purpose of the book is to convince anybody that, number one, thinking about plan B is so insidious, even contemplating it, it's going to materially, statistically limit the probability that you are going to be successful. So one, accept the premise that you cannot be meditating on backup plans all the time. People have a hard time with that. I'm going to pay the rent. It's not what I'm saying. But number one, accept that premise. Then let's make provisions for the risk that you worry about at the beginning of the journey. Let's figure it out what you're stressed about contemplate the worst case scenario, and then and then you can more, move forward peacefully towards full commitment. One of the frustrations I have about my life right now, because I've been on Shark Tank and I'm presumably successful, is that I show up in the world, you know, as a 48-year-old white male, you know, you, you make all sorts of assumptions. Now I teach at Harvard. Oh, he probably grew up in some rarefied air, right? And, the, and I, I couldn't be further from the truth. So in the book, I share a lot of things that sometimes I actually regret where I try to model what shedding shame looks like, model what sharing vulnerability, model what imposter syndrome looks like, so that a reader could could see themselves anywhere in this journey and hopefully believe, hey, he could do it, I could do it too. Or this person could do it, and I could do it too. I loved that. And how I loved the part that where you talk about breaking patterns and, and how do you do that. And I think that the first thing is to really own what is holding you back. And, you know, it like, how do you actually just break those down? So it's uh, it's definitely what the well, best and I, and I, I think in business, we tend to want the answers to the problems to be in an Excel sheet and they're not in the Excel sheet. The Italians have a great phrase, the fish rots from the head. But pe- businesses are all about people. And it, because these are cliches, bet on the jockey, we tend to dismiss cliches because we want to break new ground. But it is about the people. And so. The number one hack in business and in your personal life is cultivating self-awareness. So as an investor, how do you identify self-awareness in a leader? As a leader, how do I cultivate cultivate self-awareness? And so the, the whole book is designed to give you permission to look within and not be afraid for what you might found. If I go ahead and tell you that the world brought me to my knees in the aftermath of divorce, it's not something I love sharing. The purpose is to say, I looked within, I faced you know, my own demons at the end of the day, and 
I'm better for it, right? So again, these stories are meant to imprint those ideas. I find a lot of business books, you could relate to this, they over-index on trying to make it reference material or lecturing you, you know, or just like telling you sunny Instagram posts that aren't actionable. People assimilate information through stories that they can then emulate. So if I'm successful, hopefully my book reads like a novel to anybody out there listening, that it's an enjoyable read that leaves you with just an emotion more than knowledge, which is, I can do it. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like infinite possibility. That feeling is going to stay with me even when you forget the information. I love that you said that. And obviously with RSC, you've invested in a lot of founders who have stories, their why. And you teach this course at, at Harvard Business School as well. What is the value that you see in in the founder stories? Like, how long should a founder story be part of a brand? Yeah. I, you know, all of those kind of questions that I think at times people are at odds uh, with founders are at odds with maybe some investors about that topic as well. And I'd be curious. And, and also, has that changed over time? Such a great question. Such a great and complicated question. I think there are, there are these inflection points, right, where founders should always be assessing and asking one simple question, am I the best person objectively in the world to be doing this job at this moment in time to achieve the result? And I find founders often struggle with um, mission creep. They, they broadly define the role of founder as being able to do every job and be the best CEO, whereas the job of the founder is actually an equity holder. It's the first among equals. It's the designated proxy of the investors to run the entity. And when you are no longer the best person to unlock the value, then you shouldn't have the job. But that creates a crisis in self-esteem with a lot of founders. Well, I was supposed to be the best person to do the job. It's like, who said it? Why would the person who's able to create the business be the one that's able to turn it into a you know a multinational corporation if that's what the business calls for? It's not logical. So I think the biggest breakthrough moments I've seen happen with founders is when you peacefully accept you don't have to be good at everything. Like It's actually not right. You have to be good at one thing, which is identifying who's the best at all things. Right, that is the ultimate founder skill because you're a catalyst who's trying to deploy people in different capacities. So it's a long way of saying, I do think often, more often than not, protecting the founder in the role is important because uh-huh. no one's going to be more motivated to make this baby grow up than a founder. They have more on the line, right? Their entire self, you know, image is associated with the company. So so long as they're generally the best person to do that job, including the intangibles, like I just said then they should continue. It's when a founder is not self-aware to ask those questions and just says like, this is mine or I have a right. Like the minute you take on money from outsiders, like you are the first among equals representing, you are the designated proxy, but nobody has a right to run a company even when even when you created it. Yeah, so, so, so interesting. And I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, it varies obviously by business. I mean, there's some founders that, you know, sort of are only the CEO for, for a year. There's others that are there for, a period of time and scale the company and then decide that they want to go back to ground zero and build again. Um, so definitely, I mean, Gary's probably a great example and go and do different things in different categories um, too. And, and, and I want to make one point before I forget this, like yeah. oftentimes keeping the founder in place is a defensive move because what would happen in the absence of a founder? Sometimes when those cap tables get real messy and then you have the uh, the, you know, the investors running the place, there tends to be a regression to the mean. 
a regression to safety, right? Despite what everybody says, we want to be innovative. We love being dynamic. When things get rough, investors always want safety, right? And that, that safety isn't always the right decision. So a lot of times when I'm thinking about that founder dynamic, I'm also thinking about how to protect the business against who would run it in their absence. You know, and, 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 and the second principle I always begin with, and I tell my team this, we believe this at RSA, you take the founder as they come. And are, you can't cherry pick people and be like, I really love how dynamic you are, Gary, and but I wish you weren't on social as much. Like, you take people as they come, and it's our job as enablers to try to help mitigate the downside impact. But like, yeah, I hate when people are trying to cherry pick magic. Be like, I want you to be great here, but I want you to be like as if we're robots and automatons. So I always start with a bias towards it's my job to mitigate potential downsizes rather than cherry pick somebody's personality. Yeah, no, and I think that that's a great position to be in as an investor, for sure. So Burn the Boats, how did you come up with the title? Ah, great. I love talking about this. So, <laughs> uh, well, I, I kept I kept encountering this phrasing at different points in my career, and I would always, you know, it always get my attention. And then when I was working at the New York Jets for an amazing coach, Rex Ryan, colorful, dynamic coach, uh, and we were in the middle of an improbable playoff run. Uh, but we had lost two games in a row and the team was about to play the Pittsburgh Steelers and Rex gave a speech, uh, which was written about by the New York Times. It was that it was that compelling and full of emotion. And he was basically telling the story of Cortez, which a lot of the players haven't heard. Cortez was a nasty person, so don't emulate his behavior, but uh, emulate the principle. And he was telling the story of Cortez about how when he was taking on the Aztecs in 1519, uh, he burned all the boats so that his soldiers knew they had no way home. And, and, and so Rex gives this speech, like he burned the boats. I'm just asking you to win one game, you know, like, and his owls were animating, the jowls were animating and like, and he was crying so emotional. Yeah. And the times wrote an article about how they walked out of that room and they were ready and they won. Of course, the story wouldn't be told if they hadn't won. It ends well. They win. And, that moment, that was like a, a had stuck in my head. Say, one day I want to write a book about why we hesitate. And I want to use this idea that keeps coming up. Because when I left Rex over the years, I would I would go back in time and keep reading, wait, this phrase is in the art of war. Sun Tzu says when when an arm when an enemy is a, you know, when army's outnumbered, you burn the boats and break the cooking pots. Caesar used it when he crossed the Rubicon. It shows up going all the way back to the Old Testament. Why is it that military leaders know intuitively what we refuse to accept? rationally, which is that humans perform better when they have no safety net. And so this conventional wisdom, so I was like, let me see if this point has been proven in science. Sure enough, multiple studies, one out of Warden in 2014, that if you simply tell somebody they have permission to think about another way to achieve the result, they're like, ah, I'd rather do that. That sounds easier. <laughs> you know? so, so, in my, so I'm appropriating a military concept to use in peacetime, number one. But to be honest, the word boat and mine is not about necessarily escape and backup plan. It's more sure. a metaphor for the things in our lives that we must burn down in order to finally commit to what are, is our God-given potential. I use a, in the cover an image of a boat that's actually meant to be a paper boat floating in a bathtub. Because I found the first boat that most of us need to burn are, are those issues that originated in childhood. And they are for me, and maybe that's a degree of confirmation bias because that's how I see the world. But every one of us has, like, I was trying to make my dad happy, and now the world I built is not my own. It was built for him. Or, you know, we all have those things. And so uh, th that's why I start there. But the boat is not just backup plan. Boat is anything internal and external that you need to burn in order to fully commit to your potential. No, it's, it's so, so good. So last question, what's the 
best advice you've ever received. You've worked with incredible people. Uh, you have uh, lots and lots of connections. You've seen people do businesses. You've done your own businesses. What is the best advice that you've ever received along the way? Oh, my God. I don't have to distill 48 years into like one question. I know. I'm I know. actually remembering a conversation I had uh, at a party with Peter Gruber, who's the owner of the Warriors, Golden State Warriors. Amazing human being. Just like feels like a dad figure and a brilliant businessman. And I was lamenting a situation that and maybe I was using slight victim language, which I don't normally do. I never feel like a victim or sorry for yourself, but maybe I, I had a, a tinge in it. And he said, he said, Matt, be an agent in your own rescue. Basically saying, never be a victim and be intentional. Take custody of the situation and figure your way out. And it was like kind of harsh because it was looking for like a hug. But I realized like, you're right. Be an agent in your own rescue. And I have let that repeat in my head all the time. I generally follow that as a principle of my life. Whenever I stray and I feel like I don't have the answers or I feel a degree of defeatism, you know, overwhelmed, I said, no, 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 no. Be an agent in your own rescue. We always have the last word until our last breath. And that is how I live my life. That's why I wrote that book. God, that speaks to me a lot. So, well, thank you so much, Matt. We'll have everything in the show notes, how to get the book, how to reach out to you as well. But I really appreciate oh, your thank time. Thank you for having and me. It's so fun to talk about. It's so fun. To, I love talking about the psychological stuff way more than the. It's all about what's going on in our heads, not necessarily, you know, at our, at our job. So I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about the book. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.